you have your Bibles, let's hold them up. Is it hot in here to you? All of you are hot? We've got the air cranked up, I think. All right. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, would you speak to me? In Jesus' name. Amen. I give a high five, pound your neighbor, encourage them in the Lord. Every year, 40, around 45% of us in America uh, seize upon the desire for a fresh start. And at New Year's, we make one or more resolutions. And all the resolution is, is, a, is we're trying to make a commitment to ourselves uh, regarding a project or a habit that usually will call for some type of a lifestyle change. We want to lose weight, exercise more, quit smoking or drinking, get out of debt. Uh, these make the top ten resolves every year. Uh, we feel determined. We even go as far as joining a fitness center or uh, in, get ourselves involved in a 12-step program or we buy a book or we get a CD. We create a plan for change. Yet every year, 97% of us with firm resolve fail. We fail. Early efforts proved to be a flash in the pan and in the end we don't lose weight exercise more stop smoking or drinking or we get out of debt and usually by june it's over and we're left unchanged why is that why is that even more significant there are scores of people who claim Christ is their personal Lord and Savior, but whose lifestyles show little difference from those who make no such claim. It's so common that we no longer think of it all strange that someone who says they're Christians routinely drink like the world does, talk like the world does, engages in unmarried sex like the world does, struggles with rage like the world does, divorces at the same rate as the world does, does business like the world does, and yet they do all of that while saying they believe in Christ and that He's delivered them from this world and that the sins they are uh, persisting in are forgiven and they are heaven-bound. Taking these patterns down to a personal level, there are some in this room who struggle and agonize to be free from weaknesses. I'll raise my hand first. That's what leaders do. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I struggle with weaknesses, habits, sinful patterns. When you're on vacation, you really don't really uh, want to deal with diets. Can, can I get an amen? And so on vacation for a week, in the Houston, Texas area, as we visited with Mark, there were a number of wonderfully looking restaurants. We went to Galveston and we found our favorite seafood restaurant. To me, it rivals Papa Do's. I know Terry and Kim will go, oh, there ain't no way. 
It's been there over 70 years in existence, this restaurant. I sat down at the table and I wanted flounder. I found out you can have flounder in 15 different ways. I was a good boy. I had grilled flounder, flounder and vegetables. But I looked across the table at Mark's plate and Cindy's plate. And my flesh said, I want their plates. In addition to my plate. <laughs> I even lost one pound while I was gone. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I did too. I said, no, there ain't no way. <clears throat> Cindy introduced me to the, the, there was There was a Brahms, yes. Cindy introduced me to Cheesecake Factory. <clears throat> I just said, you introduced me. You didn't make me eat it. And I didn't. I didn't eat any of the cheesecake, but boy, did it look good. They said, they said oh, we have one that's sugar-free. I said, okay, I'll try some. Oh, we're out. <laughs> but we do have this, sir. I said, I'm sure you do. <laughs> anyway, struggles are there, aren't they? Yours, we'll just put a blank. You put your struggle in the blank. Because it'll have different forms, different fashions. This morning... As we continue our series, Change from the Inside Out, I want you to hear from God on how to have the power to change. This morning, I want to show you the resources that are already yours in Christ by which you can break free from those fleshly patterns that have a grip on you. Ephesians 4 is where we've been. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles there to Ephesians 4. We'll get to it in just a second. In verse 1, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned, verse 1 speaks walking worthy of the calling that we've received. I must stop here and tell you that as this message today has beat me up. I am beat up with this message. Somebody has said occasionally as they walk out, boy, you were stepping on my toes. If I'm on your toes, it's because mine have been crushed. That's where I am today. So if I hit a nerve with you today, understand that I'm just crawling out from under my desk where God has beat me up, okay? Because this message speaks so to me, and I hope to be able to share with you what God's doing in me, and I hope that from this day forward, you will see a difference in what God's doing in me and challenge you to come join me in the journey. Walk worthy of the calling we've, been, we've received. And it's a phrase that, as I mentioned, that pictures a great scale. Jesus has placed himself on one side of the scale. And we, I've, I challenge you to place you and what you're doing in Christ on the other side of the scale and see how it balances. A few weeks ago, somebody left, one of our good members left at the door, and they were a bit concerned. And I gathered, not upset, but, you know, concerned about what I had said about that scale and Jesus on one side and we're on the other and we balance the scale. She said, we can't balance the scale. You know what? She's exactly right. When it comes to salvation, there's not a thing you and I can do to make that scale balance. Not a thing. Amen? But here's the truth. And here's what I'm really trying to say to you. Is that since Jesus died for you, since Jesus paid the penalty for sin for you at, at the cross, what in your life have you been demonstrating 
that he's involved in enough and working through you enough that it's evident to other people. Now you with me? You're talking about balancing the scale now. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus becomes more in us. You see? You see where I'm going? I remember Dale Casting teaching uh, men's study. And I'll, I'll never forget this lesson. He was talking about how the Pharisees polished the outside of the chalice. And he used that as an illustration to talk about us. And he said, he said, guys, how much of us are more concerned about polishing the outside of the chalice than we are on the inside of the chalice? Because you see, you can make yourself on the outside look really spiritual. Last Sunday, the preacher was preaching and, you know, doing announcements. And he goes, and, he's, and he acknowledged uh, Cindy and I were there. He said, Mark, I think your mom and dad are here. He goes, oh, yeah, he looks just like a preacher. I looked like everybody else in the whole room. How did I look like a preacher? Except that I was his dad, you know. I mean, hey, what do you do? Is it that stamped on us? That we look like preachers? You guys look like preachers. You are preachers, by the way. It's supposed to be. <laughs> That's right. But what I'm talking about is, is Jesus infecting and affecting your life so much that people notice it. That it's evident to those around you, those you work with, those you live with, the family members you associate with. Is your behavior, your attitude, your words, even your inner thoughts, are they outworking because of His influence in you? You see, it's not enough just to be like the world. We've got to be in the world. Not of the world. In the world, not of the world. I'm, I am working desperately on my driving. I've not gotten there yet. Cindy can attest to that. But I'm working on it. I'm working on when that guy cuts me off, I'm saying a prayer for him. Not through gritted teeth. I'm not praying for hellfire and brimstone like I used to. I used to say, I'm praying for you, buddy. That you die right there, you know. But I'm beginning to pray. God, they must be in a bigger hurry than I am. So, and it's, it's so interesting because then you'll come up on a wreck, right? If you've been going really fast, you'd be in a wreck. And in Houston, that's every day. Three or four times on those busy, busy freeways. People, eight lanes and they're full. My goodness. Can you imagine doing that every day? I love the longest commute in Tulsa, 15 to 20 minutes. Hallelujah. <laughs> I was ready to get home. When I spoke two weeks ago in verse 2, I showed us what your life will look like when you're walking worthy. You will be humble rather than self-centered. Gentle rather than argumentative. Patient rather than reactionary. And forbearing rather than judgmental toward other people. These are the kind of people that generate harmony with those around them. And then in verses 3 through 6, it, it, it fully describes that person that generates harmony. So many of the sinful habits and patterns we are losing the battle with have to do with those four attitudes that I just mentioned. So how do we become more Christ-like? Well, in order to find that answer, we're going to have to take a journey with Jesus. 
And that's what verses 7 through 10 help us do. And we're actually going to walk through a mysterious point in the life of Jesus' ministry. That, that, that time between his death and his resurrection. What was Jesus doing during those three days? And how can that help me break long-standing addictions or forgive someone who has deeply wounded me or stop cursing or break free from pornography? If you're ready to, 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 to experience real change in Christ, I want you to go with me on this journey. Let's pick it up at verse 7, chapter 4, book of Ephesians. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I want to give you some principles, some principles for lasting change that we find in these passages. Let's start with principle number one in verse seven. Every Christian can change. When I grew up in Texas, my mom, there was five boys, and so my mom would cook that we never sit down at the table to eat. My mom would fix it at the stove, and then she would say, she would step back for fear of her life, and she would say, it's ready! And like a cattle call, here we come. Now being the youngest and the smallest back then, not necessarily the case now, but being the youngest, well, I'll always be the youngest, but I, wasn't, I was the smallest back then, so I usually got bumped to the last. Everybody got their plate, and then went scattered around. And I would get my plate, and then if there was a little bit left, if a little bit left, mom would walk around with the pan and the, and the spoon, and she'd say, you want a little more? You want a little more? Like she's holding that as a carrot out there. Yeah, I want some more! <laughs> so she would give us a little bit more. But she'd always start with me because I was the baby, and I always didn't have as much on my plate. And my brother will say, yeah, but you made up for lost time. Well, yes, I did. I learned what buffet means, you see. But it was always a little more. And it is with God and with his saving grace. He not only gives us the saving grace, he gives us a serving grace to serve others. To impact others. Look at verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us. How? Underline this. According to the measure of the Messiah's gift. He gives grace to each of us based on the Messiah's gift in each of us. It's unique. It's directed. It's set up just for us. Isn't that wonderful? He works in you so that you become a conduit a conduit of His goodness in the lives of others. He rewires your inner world so that you are a channel that He can work through, passing grace on so that others are strengthened, they're encouraged, and they're given wisdom. When you were saved, Jesus reworked your inner world so that you could make a difference and be an effective and significant impact for Jesus in the lives of others. 
And notice the personal touch that he puts here. That this grace was given to each of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. I love that. I love that. He knows me well enough to know what to put in my life, is what that says. Is that not exciting for you? It should be. It should be very exciting for you that he will do that for you. And here it is again in Scripture. Every Christian can change. A caterpillar doesn't get to, to vote of, uh, a vote of whether it will become a butterfly. It doesn't get a chance to, to try on the cocoon to, before it actually moves in and lives there. God has built this transformation into that caterpillar's very nature. And so it is with us. True Christians are changed from the inside out. You are meant to fly. Jesus equipped you to experience the abundant life of glorifying God in all you do. So anytime you hear someone who claims to be a Christian say, I can't help the way I am. I've tried, but it just doesn't work for me. Well, you know there is a disconnection somewhere. Either they're confused or they're unconverted. So think of that place in your life where you struggle and you repeatedly fail. All week on vacation, God just dealt with me in this. Dealt with me, dealt with me, dealt with me. That's why I was so excited when I got back from our trip and I stepped, and I stepped on that dreaded scale and I figured I'd gain 90, 100 pounds. And I lost one. I just went, yeah. Now, don't get cocky. <laughs> don't think you can go out to the buffet. You see, keep working and keep drinking water. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Why does water have to be drunk? Doesn't taste, smells. But you drink it, don't you? Without it, we don't have life. That's it. And the more you drink, the less food stays with you. Okay, I'll move on. The great news about principle number one is that God's not finished with me yet. So I want you to look at your neighbor on either side, and I want you to say, God's not finished with me yet. I can change. Tell him. Some of you were hesitant. Come on. Let's go to principle number two, verses 8 through 10. Life change was secured by Jesus. Life change was secured by Jesus. Now, you've got to walk with me through some unfamiliar territory here. You're going to think that we're off the point. I guarantee you're going to think that I'm off the point for a few minutes. But it's the very heart of what transformation into Christ-likeness means. Verse 8, taken from an Old Testament quotation of Psalm 68. For, based on God's eternal intention to give the gift of grace to every believer through Christ, for it says, when he ascended on high, he led the captives, he gave gifts to the people. And you really can't understand that verse unless you understand the context as David wrote it in Psalm 68. David drew from his military knowledge celebrating the triumph of God over Israel's enemies. In ancient times, 
when a nation conquered its enemy, the victorious king would lead a great processional through the streets of his home city. Behind him marched all of his troops in shining battle array. Along with the soldiers, there were the prisoners of war who had been captured by the enemy, but were now freed by their victorious king. Next in line were the conquered enemies' armies led by their vanquished king. They are in chains, humiliated in their utter defeat. Finally, there are livestock and wagon loads of gold, jewelry, silver, and valuables that have been captured from the enemy. And when the procession arrives at the palace, the king orders the distribution of the spoils of war. One by one, the people would give uh, and be given some token of the king's victory, serving as a constant reminder of the triumph over that foe. Now, take a look at Ephesians 4 and verse 8 again. Because it describes a processional led by Jesus. When he ascended on high, he led the captives and gave gifts to men. A tremendous battle had been won by the, our Lord. He took on the full force of, the, of a world's sin, allied as it was with death, and contended with the one behind both, who is Satan himself and his armies. The final battle ensued atop a hill in, outside Jerusalem. There, suspended above the earth on a cross, Jesus unfolded the most surprising and unusual strategy ever conceived so thoroughly taking our sin in His body that the Bible says He became sin along with the curse of God sin brings and then paying the penalty in full by His willing and innocent death on the cross. In response to that is Colossians 2.15. And it tells us that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is a reference to powerful demonic forces, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by Him. By Him, that is Jesus. So King Jesus has, in His processional ascension to heaven, the shattered forces of the enemy. He also leads a host of captives. And I'll, I'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But then finally, he gave gifts to people. And along with the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave serving grace to each believer as a token reminder of his triumph. So as you serve others through Christ, you in essence praise him. Are you with me? It's a great thing. So when I let that guy cut me off in traffic, and I just say hallelujah, God bless you, speed on down the road, brother. That's a good thing. When I get to an opportunity to go to a buffet and I stand at the door and hold up a cross and say, No! And I walk away. That's a good thing. You fill in your blank. Whenever you can say no to that, you win. Eh? Yeah. And you know what? Every day is a new day. The battle rages on. But every day is a new day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is. 
Every day, he's after me. He's renewing me day by day by day. And I'm told in Hebrews to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, it's, it's an effort, isn't it? And you've got to stay with it. Don't think I, walk to, I get in the water, I come out of the water, man, it's over. I don't got to do nothing else. As far as doing anything, you're right, you don't do anything. But out of an attitude of gratitude, you want to show. You want to share. You want to live. You're with me now. Are you with me now? But don't miss what happened after the battle. Look at verse 9. It tells us that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. Between death and resurrection, Jesus went to a specific place for a specific purpose. And we don't really know the geography of where that is, but we do get a hint from it out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Where, where we read, put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. So while they were burying his dead body on earth, his spirit was very active. In the days of the Old Testament and in, and in the Gospels, the Bible gives us brief glimpses into a place that the dead go while they await the final judgment of God. And Jesus referred to that in Luke chapter 16 with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies, and it says he uh, was in, went to a place of torment called Hades, and uh, the place for those that are lost in sin. Lazarus, it says, died, and he went to what Jesus called Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, or paradise. That's the place for those who are made righteous by God. And Peter says it was this place that Jesus went and proclaimed what had happened. He announced his credentials. He declared his victory. And this was the rest of what he said. It is when he said, it is finished. On the cross, when he yelled that, is what he meant. He had fulfilled God's will. He had broken sin's power. He had won the battle. He makes this proclamation to those who had believed. In God's promise of provision for sin in a coming Messiah, He declares His triumph to those who had rejected God. To some, it was a message of unspeakable joy. To others, it sealed their doom. Jesus went to the place of the dead, but not to stay, but to tear the gates of death off their hinges. The implication in this passage and elsewhere is that He emptied paradise of those who trusted in God's coming Messiah and Savior, and He led them home in His processional. All right, I get it. Jesus won, preacher. But how does that help me? It takes us to the last principle. Principle number three, it's time to act on the truth. All of us have seen what happens when it rains hard. Water finds the path of least resistance by which to flow to the lowest point. Let it rain enough and the water run off enough and it'll cut a groove in the dirt. Years of that and the groove can become a trench. Hundreds of years of that and it can become a riverbed. How do you stop water from flowing down the path of least resistance? You dam it up. How do you stop temptation from traveling down the well-worn path to sin? It has found in your life so often. You dam it up. Well, what do I dam it up with? I'm glad you ask, because there's a powerful passage that we've read it many, many times. You've heard it many, many times, but I want you to see it in a different way today. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Before every baptism we have here, we read these passages. 
Romans chapter 6, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. These passages directly connect this account to our life. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply or increase? Absolutely not, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into, what does your Bible say? His death. Are you with me so far? Therefore we were buried with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. You connect through the action of baptism with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you only go to the water and don't change your heart before you get to the water, what good's it going to do? <laughs> you go in dry, you come out wet, no change. You've got to show change. You've got to be different. And at 300 North Elm, we've got to be a different church. We've got to be an alive church. We've got to be an active church. When there's a call for help, you jump up and respond. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. You jump up and do it. Well, I'm not a member here. Good. Come on. That's never held me back from putting you to work for God. I'd love for you to be a member here. But if you want to serve, I'm ready for you to serve. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I never will forget, we needed teachers a few years ago, and I called Julie Davis. I said, Julie, you want to teach in a rotation? She said, I never taught before. I said, I can teach you. I gave her 10 minutes and a, and a handbook and said, catch you later. <laughs> Best time she ever had in her life. Why? Because she had to prepare to teach the lesson to somebody else. Hello, there you go. Okay? That's what it's all about, isn't it, folks? It's being more than I am now. Making the changes I need to make. Breaking free from dominant, the dominant power of sin is not an option for me as a Christian. Because everything Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection applies to me. And that's what those Roman passages, six passages tell me. I was baptized into his death. And then I was raised to walk in a new life. He died for sin. I died to sin. He was raised victorious. I am raised victorious. So you say, my head hurts, preacher. Can you cut to the bottom line on this? What does this all mean? How does all this enable me to change, to become more like Christ? Well, just this way. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, you and I are totally linked to Christ in what He has won. These passages describe the moment in objective history when your spiritual freedom and transformation was accomplished. In other words, it's a done deal. Well, if that's so, then why do I lose more than I win? One of two reasons. Either you aren't a true Christian, or you have not believed that the victory Jesus gained 
was also your victory. And I think most are on that side of it. I know I have been, but I'm rapidly going to the other side. I want you to come on the journey with me. Do you believe? Do you believe? Father, I just want to ask you this morning. As we prepare to sing an invitation song. God, I want to ask you this morning. If you would do a mighty work in the hearts and lives of your people in this room. Father, we're worried about our finances. Homes are being foreclosed. Businesses are closing. Layoffs are happening. Gas prices are unbelievable. Cost of food is going up. Utilities are going up. Everything's going up. And our struggles continue. We're not sure who's going to win the election. We're not sure if war is going to break out with Israel. We're concerned. Doctors aren't giving us good reports. We're not feeling the way we felt in the past and there's something wrong and we're fearful to go to the doctor because we really don't want to find out that we're extremely sick. But God, I know one thing. I know one thing. And that's you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And whether I die today or a hundred days from now or a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, the fact will still be true that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And the hope that I have is that one day I will leave this life to be with you forever. And God, if there's a person in this room that doesn't feel that assurance, that if they were to die today, that they would wake up in your arms, would you have them run to the cross? Would you have them run to the cross, God? Would you move in them? Would they open their hearts to you enough? Would they lower their level of pride enough to let you run through them. Father, I think this church has been a complacent church. I think we've been a satisfied church. I know I have been. I drew the line in the sand a few days ago, Lord. You and I talked about it. And I won't step over that line again. So God, are you who you say you are? And can we allow you to be who you are in us? And do we trust you? And the essence of it, Father, is do we really believe it? There's a decision to be made today. Would you move in your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this song this morning.